Good evening, and welcome to the Ecology Hour. I'm Anna Halligan, and tonight's pre-recorded show is going to be focused on the geology of the North Coast. Northwestern California has been shaped by the forces of plate tectonics. The process involves the plates of the Earth's crust to collide, resulting in uplifting of land, great earthquakes, and geologic instability. Until the 1970s, the varied assemblage of rock types in the coast range was a puzzle to geologists, but now are recognized as remnants of vast areas of seafloor and fragments of the continental margin. This complex was broadly categorized as the Franciscan Formation, but several distinct terrains are now recognized. Last week, I was able to sit down and speak with Tom Leroy, an engineering geologist with Pacific Watershed Associates. Pacific Watershed Associates is a Humboldt County-based environmental consulting firm that has an extensive history managing sediment and drainage systems on forest, ranch, and rural road networks, but also provides a slew of other services, including water quality monitoring, stormwater management, and engineering services. If you have listened to me host this show before, you may know that I work for a nonprofit locally, group called Trout Unlimited, and my work is focused on watershed and salmon restoration. And I've been fortunate enough to work with Tom for the last 10 years in a lot of the coastal streams that drain along the Mendocino County coastline. Thanks for tuning in, and know that we also stream live at kzyx.org. I am joined on this line with Tom Leroy, who's an engineering geologist with Pacific Watershed Associates. And I want to first say thank you, Tom, for taking the time to sit down and talk to me. Oh, well, of course, Anna. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. Yeah, Tom and I get to work together a lot, but um, and I always appreciate hearing your insight about, you know, the, the, to, to get a, geo, a geologist perspective on um, the work that we do. And I thought it would be fun to have you on the show and to share some of your knowledge with our listeners. So I thought it might be great just to begin with um, having you tell us a little bit about Pacific Watershed Associates, the firm you work for, and about the work that you do for them. Yeah, of course. Um, like uh, you mentioned earlier, I'm an engineering geologist at Pacific Watershed Associates. We are located in Humboldt County. Um, we also have uh, an office in Petaluma. Um, and so most of our efforts are uh, focused in the um, northwestern California. Um, you know, prime, we are a full-service consulting firm, but, you know, the vast majority of our work is um, doing watershed restoration in, in one form or another. Um, often that's in the form of uh, road upgrading and road decommissioning, um, improving culverts or other uh, infrastructure for fish passage, um, improving in-stream uh, conditions for fish habitat, and so on and so forth. So that's the the bulk of uh, what we do, um, you know, our firm has engineers and geologists and biologists, and so we uh, really try as best we can to bring interdisciplinary science to the art of restoration. And um, we partner with uh, all kinds of people and, and 
we think that's a really great way to go, forging partnerships to, uh, you know, restore the environment. So that, that's kind of what we do. Yeah, so, so you have a background as a geologist, and the geology along the North Coast is pretty fascinating. And I know there it's probably hard to distill it down into, you know, a, a brief or kind of succinct description, but I was wondering if we could just start by having you give a little bit of an overview of the geology of the North Coast and, and the processes that are guiding it. Yes. I would love to, and and, it's, and you know, the more time goes on, the more we learn about this kind of stuff, and the more interesting um, everything is. Um, I mean, most people probably have a general idea that the geology of an area like the north coast of Mendocino County um, uh, is really a fundamental element of the landscape that we see um, and the watershed processes that are occurring on these landscapes. And in turn, all of that can um, really lead to the uh, distribution of uh, habitat for the various creatures that, that um, you know, occupy this part of the world, in particular um, fish. Um, you know, in general, the um, the geologic rocks that uh, um, make up the western part of North America and, and in, in our part of the world, in the Mendocino-Humboldt area, is primarily dominated by a, um, a formation called the Franciscan Formation, which um, is mostly composed of marine sediments that were deposited um, offshore, uh, you know, in depths ranging from, you know, relatively shallow, like 100 feet to, in some places, you know, thousands of feet of uh, depth in the water. Um, when, when that was occurring, when the Franciscan was being deposited, um, the entire length of California was what is called a subduction zone. And from most of you people may remember from your basic geology classes or even just your fundamental science classes, the subduction zone is where the oceanic plate, you know, the earth is composed of all these lithospheric plates. The oceanic plate is being pushed and pulled underneath the continental crust. Um, and so during, when the Franciscan was being deposited, um, there was a subduction zone along all of California. And adjacent to that subduction zone was a volcanic arc. And that volcanic arc now is what we call the Sierra Nevadas. So the Sierra Nevada mountain range that makes up the kind of eastern margin of California there is a giant um, cooled off plug of molten magma that was associated with the volcanoes that were being formed from the subduction zone on the edge of California. So that's how, that's when the, and, and then during that time, the material that was washing off those volcanoes were getting washing off into the ocean and being deposited as the Franciscan Formation. And um, that was pretty extensive. That's pretty much all the way from Southern California to the Oregon border this was occurring. Um, and about 30 million years ago, things changed a little bit, and the subjunction zone, for reasons that I won't explain during this show, slowly started to switch from 
an area where the plate was being subducted or shoved under the continent to an area where the Pacific plate was sliding by the North American plate. And that contact of sliding right there is what we call the San Andreas Fault. And everybody now, I'm sure, is familiar with the San Andreas Fault. So it ends up that um, that the San Andreas Fault is, is slipping so that the Pacific Ocean is moving to the northwest compared to the, uh, the um, North America. And the San Andreas Fault ends at what is called the Mendocino Triple Junction, right at Cape Mendocino. And north of Cape Mendocino, you still have a subduction zone. And south of Cape Mendocino, you have a strike-slip fault system. And um, so that kind of should give you just a general idea of the, the geology that's in the area. And then, you know, kind of the major faults that are kind of bounding this area. And the thing that's super interesting, I think, and, and this is really cutting-edge um, science, is that where the subducting plate north of the Mendocino Triple Junction is going under the North American continent, it's sort of acting like a heat shield from the hot molten magma in the, in the mantle. And south of that subducting plate, where there is no subducting plate, that hot material from the mantle is actually able to um, heat up the Earth's crust. And what happens when you heat something up? It expands. So, as the Mendocino Triple Junction slowly is migrating northward along the western edge of the uh, North America, in, in its wake, there is an area of heated earth that is causing topographic bulges. And those topographic bulges are moving like a wake behind a boat as the Mendocino Triple Junction migrates to the north. And it ends up that that is having profound impacts on the river systems in, in the Mendocino area um, in, in a couple ways. One is it's causing regional uplift, which is just allowing the entire landscape to uplift in general. And it's also causing what a geologist or a geomorphologist would call large head cuts to move through the river system. A head cut is where the uh, um, gradient of the channel gets a little bit over steepened and so it has a little more scouring power and that head cut can actually m slowly scour its way upstream as it's um, as it's working its way up the river system and that has resulted in several steps having formed in the river systems and those steps either allow or don't allow fish to migrate past there um, they also uh, cause different forms of uh, stream piracy, which is when a river, one river watershed is captured by another river watershed as these processes go on. So it ends up that this area south of Cape Mendocino and north of, say, uh, the Navarro River watershed and from the coast Pacific Coast to the South Fork Eel River, that kind of block area, is kind of acting as a single 
block that has experienced different kind of uplift history through its time frame. And it, it's so interesting because that, that geologic block coincides with some of the best distribution of coho habitat in California. Um, it also coincides with low population densities, which is also probably a reason that the coho, those are coho strongholds. But the reality is, is that the watersheds in those areas have developed relatively low gradient um, channels for long ways. And it ends up that coho salmon in particular are highly dependent on those low gradient channels. Um, not only because they it, don't have to exert as much energy to get up there, but it also um, allows the river systems to form the complex habitat, including floodplains and little uh, river and riverine landforms that don't just form in the actual scouring channel itself, but kind of on the margins of the channel. It ends up those are super important coho habitat. And so I think what's going on here is that the, the fundamental geologic processes that are occurring in this area are really set up well to provide good habitat for the the coho salmon and, and this is something that uh we've been looking at you know only within the last last year or so as our understanding of how the tectonics um have uh developed through time up here um and it just is so lucky that I'm in a position where not only do I have access to a lot of cutting edge geologic studies, but I also spend my life doing fisheries restoration. And so I've been able to link these, these geologic scale phenomena with um, the habitat of fisheries. So I think that's kind of, you know, a, one real fundamental way in which the geology is influencing the um the fish distribution habitat up here um i mean there's there's a lot more just in the fundamental properties of the rock and how those watersheds can develop really hard rock watersheds don't erode as quickly and can have steeper side slopes and and are, have less erodibility while you know other other uh portions of the um watersheds may have other attributes that, that aren't similar. I know you had a recent um, uh, discussion with uh, David Drawley from the U.S. Forest Service, and he um, has some similar geologic observations um, of looking at the two different Franciscan bodies, and he can talk extensively about how they hold groundwater differently, and as they hold groundwater differently, they uh, exhibit different plant types and channel geomorphologies. So geology really is fundamental to, you know, a lot of um, ecology in, in so many ways. It's just that it's mostly overlooked because we're sitting here looking at the surface and looking at processes and these geologic phenomena are a little, a little deeper down, but they do affect profound influence on the, uh, on the distribution of habitat. I do have a question though about these, uh, what did you call them? They were like um, rolling bulges, geologic bulges, ah, the, yeah. the descriptive term. The so is that something the, uh, that, 
Yeah. Is that something that, that like, like that a trained professional can observe on the landscape? I was trying, I was, I was trying to visualize what I'll give you, type I'll of give landscape you a couple features examples. that. Uh-huh. Yeah. Let, let me give you a couple of examples of how they started to work this out. Um, you know, a lot of this started, I mean, about 10 years ago when a guy named Rich Kaler uh, was working on his master's degree at Humboldt State University. And he was looking at the drainage divide between the Mad River and the um, North Fork of the Eel River. And it ends up that the, the drainage divide of those two major watersheds is at a place called Hettenshaw Valley. And Hettenshaw Valley is a true valley. I mean, it is flatter than a cow space. It's a half a mile wide, yet it's at the drainage divide between two major watersheds. You should not have a, a valley, a flat valley floor at a drainage divide. A, fat, a flat valley floor forms with a through-going watershed. And so it, it, it's, it became apparent uh, at that point in time that what was happening was is that the Mad River watershed, which is the one to the north, is actually getting smaller and it's being captured by the Eel River drainage to the south. And, and so if you, and if you go down the Eel River drainage basin from there and you head downstream, it's, what you'll notice as you pass all of the major tributaries is that the tributaries are barbed in the wrong direction. And, and what I mean by that is that when stream confluences typically come together to, into, into a main stem, they, they point downstream. You know, rarely does a tributary come in and have to take a U-turn to start flowing down the, the main line channel. But in the Eel River, all the major tributaries have to make a U-turn to head down the channel in the North Fork Eel. And, and that's because those tributaries didn't develop in the main stem of the eel, they developed in the Mad River watershed, which was flowing to the north instead of flowing to the south, like the Eel River is. So once people started to recognize this drainage reversal was occurring at, at the landscape scale, they started trying to figure out why. And, and the people that really nailed it um, was a fella named Kevin Furlong and a lot of his graduate students out of the University of Pennsylvania. And they're the ones who observed this, this heat bulge forming south of the migrating Mendocino Triple Junction. And then once they observed that, then it was, it, was, it was not too difficult to link these two together and go, okay, we see what's going on here. The Mendocino Triple Junction is migrating to the north. There's a topographic bulge in, in the topography forming south of it. And as that topographic bulge migrates north with the Mendocino Triple Junction, it's causing this drainage reversal that we're seeing in the major watersheds. And um, so, you know, a lot of the water, so for example, two million years ago, the Triple Junction was probably about, um, it was probably pretty close to where, say, the mouth of Usal Creek is. Um, 30 million years ago, the Triple Junction was like where L.A. is. So that should give you an idea of the speed at which this Triple Junction is migrating to the north. 
And the whole way, there's been this rolling topographic bulge forming, forming behind it. So, you know, that's how your average, that, that's what the scientists are observing on the landscape that are allowing them to make this, in, this interpretation. And there's like some other super nerdy, put your information into the black box kind of stuff that goes on to help also support this idea, but it's beyond my capabilities to understand um, and certainly beyond my capabilities to try to explain, you know, on the radio. But right. yeah, there is a lot. And the more we look, the more we can observe phenomena in these watersheds that we can relate to um, this, this migrating topographic bulge. And I'll give you one more uh -huh. example that a lot of people have probably seen, and you can see it anytime. If you're driving on Highway 101 and you go where they built the um, new Confusion Hill bridges and bypass the big landslide at Confusion Hill, you'll notice you're sitting there on the freeway right at the edge of the bridge. You're on a flat um, fluvial terrace. It's, 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 a, it's a river. Um, deposited rounded gravel terrace. The problem is you're about 300 feet above the river right there. And so obviously those deposits didn't get deposited when the river was 300 feet lower. What has happened is that the river has just incised its way down, like a, cutting like a hot knife through butter through geologic time over the last few million years and has cut down 300 feet and left those river gravels abandoned way up high on the side of the hillside. So, and I think it's that rolling bulge that is the mechanism that is causing that, that incision and, and, and terrace abandonment. And that's something that anybody can go look at um, anytime. And then as soon as you see that, you're going to start seeing Alluvial terraces really high above the river all over the place in Mendocino County. And that's a good time to start scratching your head and saying, what happened here? Why are these alluvial terraces so high above the river? And it's these long-term geologic processes that are primarily driving that. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that's so fascinating to me about the geology on the North Coast is that it is kind of in flux constantly. And I remember when I first learned about like the rate of uplift in the county and that, and I don't know much about this. I just know that it's, it's measurable and that people are measuring it annually, the amount of uplift that occurs. And when you think about that and then you start thinking about, for example, just like some of the challenges of managing land in an area that that's like very geologically active, I think about like our roads the condition of our roads around here, which I think most people know, like road management in the North Coast is challenging. And in part, I, that's due to uplift, right? Because our our soils are always moving and it's hard to maintain a level road in, an, in, a, in, a, in the context of geology that is young and constantly in flux. Yeah, I'm, no, that, that's true. The, the, these, it, it, you know, not just the roads, but all the landsliding. Um, you know, yeah. Because uh, what happens is the faster you uplift an area, typically the steeper your hillsides are going to be. 
if you if you're updifting an area really slow, then the hill slides slowly have time to kind of lay back as they slowly erode through time. But if you uplift something really quickly, the river just cuts through the rock like a hot knife through butter and leaves these really steep valley walls. So a perfect place to observe that is like on 299 when you're driving through the Klamath Mountains. I mean, it's just nothing but rock everywhere you look. There's barely any soil on the hillsides up there. And that's because the Klamath Mountains have uplifted so rapidly um, you know, in over the last few million years that um, the, the river is just cutting down and leaving these really steep inner, inner gorges um, uh, in, in these areas. It's funny to use the term rapid and few million years in the same sentence, but I think <laughs> I geologists I are uniquely inclined to understand time in a way that the yeah. rest of us don't. Geologically, um, two million years is nothing. So, Right. Um, so coming back around to how the geologic properties of the watersheds and the landscapes here, how they're conducive to um, creating really good salmon habitat. I mean, I'm assuming that's, well, always been true. Again, here's another t time reference, but I mean, has that, it seems to me like that has been true for as long as, you know, salmon have been recorded or that we know, you know, salmon have been on the landscape. Is is that a fair assumption that these watersheds have always been conducive to providing good habitat for salmon? Or is it really like in the last, well, I don't even know, like million years or something like that? I'm going to interrupt myself here for a second and just remind listeners, if you're tuning in, you're listening to the Ecology Hour on Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio. And then also because after the interview, I was thinking about the timescale that salmon have existed on the earth, and I realized I wasn't exactly sure. So the ancestors of the Salmonid family appeared around 50 to 100 million years ago in Northern Europe. Today, there's seven species of Pacific salmon, including five that spawn along the North American coast, as well as steelhead. And then there's also a type of salmon, masu salmon, which live in Asian waters. The primary salmon in California are Chinook salmon, which are also called kings, and they are the largest. They average about 20 to 40 pounds, um, but they can weigh as much as 100 pounds. And some of the Chinooks make some of the longest migrations of any salmon. And then there are coho or silver salmon. They average about 8 to 10 pounds. And these are really strong fish, and they're known for their ability to jump and are really prized by fishermen for their vigorous fighting when hooked. And we also have steelhead, which steelhead trout are a unique species. Um, they are very closely related to rainbow trout. Um, and in fact, are 99% genetically the same. The primary difference is that rainbow trout stay in freshwater all of their lives, and wild steelhead will spawn and hatch in freshwater rivers and streams, but do migrate to the ocean. Let's return to my interview with Tom Leroy, engineering geologist with Pacific Watershed Associates. And I have just asked him 
how long the geology on Mendocino coastal streams has supported high quality salmon habitat. Um, no, I, I mean, I'm not a fisheries biologist and certainly not an evolutionary biologist, but my opinion is that um, this has always been good habitat for salmon. Um, and, you know, the, the reason that, you know, and, 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 the, and especially coho salmon in particular, I mean, they still are, you still observe them as far south as Santa Cruz. Um, and I think, you know, on a longer time scale, they probably were distributed even more in California. I think when, you know, if there's habitat available for salmon that's preferable to them, they're simply going to use it. Um, what's happened over the last like 100, 150, 200 years or whatever on the, on the West Coast here is that as people start moving in, the salmon start moving out. It's just simply the way it is. We have impacts on salmon that we don't even understand, you know, whether it's you know, impacting watershed processes like building roads and intercepting runoff or, or building barriers to fish or just the tires on our vehicles disintegrating on the road and washing into the creeks. And now we're finding out that that's really bad for salmon. And so right, right. I, think the, I think the reason that we have salmon where they are now is, is it's a, it, it, two things are conspiring. One, the habitat is preferable to them. And two, there isn't a lot of people on the, on the landscape. Um, we do have a lot of industrial timber in these areas, but it's just really starting to look like industrial timber impacts pale in comparison to, say, residential development or, or, or something like that. Um, right. Salmon are a pretty robust species and have a pretty uncanny ability to adapt to watershed disturbances. Um, but paving and, 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 and other things like that, they never were able to adapt to that. Landsliding, they've adapted to landsliding, you know, but not the other stuff that we think of when we think of development. So I think that the distribution of, of in particularly coho salmon, is really a function of lack of people and uh, where the lack of people overlap with the most preferable habitat for them. And the geology drives the preferable habitat. It also probably drives the lack of people to a certain degree because people <laughs> don't like to inhabit, inhabit some of these more remote areas because for whatever re, you know, reason. So, um, mm -hmm. so I think that's kind of what's, what's going on here. And then you'll see that outside this core area of their habitat, they will start to use these marginal areas. Um, and if, if conditions are good and the trajectory of their um, populations is good, then they will continue to distribute out into these less preferable areas, either as the watersheds begin to heal or, um, you know, as we start to have other protective measures put in place. On the other hand, if their trajectory is a lower and lower population, then we're going to see them disappear from this less preferable thing, really move into the core um, of their preferable habitat and be highly reliant on, on that to, you know, preserve the species for future generations. And, and that's where you and I come in, you know, 
to right. identify these locations where they, um, you know, are doing okay and trying to preserve and protect what we've, what we've got that's working and then try to restore what we've trashed and, uh, <laughs> and, and getting better at it every year. But part of that is really identifying where you want to focus your efforts. Yeah, I'm so glad that yeah. you made the link to the current kind of, or even kind of historic land use, because that's that's kind of what I was thinking too when I was asking the question. Is like, well, even though the geology has been changing, like this area has always hosted robust salmon populations, and and so, you know, what's the rub, right? And and what we what we know, or you know, what we we think we know is that, especially up here, the kind of um, the condition of the watersheds that we're working in today is tied to the legacy of um, land use that's occurred over the last yeah 150 200 years, and and that land use has predominantly been um, you know timber operations, and so you know you spent a lot of time working in the South Fork Eel and in the Utah watershed and other Mendocino coastal streams. Well, I know you've worked all over the state, really, but what have you observed as some of the biggest impacts on the landscape today from some of those old um, land use practices? You know, I've learned a lot in the last couple of years. I've spent almost 20 years doing this now, but um, I'm I'm actually moving past looking at like individual disturbance spots. Like here's a clear cut and here's a landslide, you know, those are impacts for sure. And they're disturbances. But what actually I think is more interesting to me right now as a restorationist. And I think where we may see the restoration community gravitate to in the, in the near future is, restoring the fundamental watershed processes that occur. And what I'm talking about is like an example of a watershed process would be um, the hydrologic process, the process by which rain falls in the watershed and some of it runs off, some of it soaks into the ground. Um, but either way, it's that water that is providing the basis for are uh, the runoff we get in storms and the runoff we get during the summertime, which we call base flow, which is just the water that's coming, leaking out of the groundwater and keeping the streams wet um, through time in the summer. And so an example of how we have um, caused disturbances to a hydrologic processes, and the classic is, is building roads all over the watershed. Roads, I mean, back in the day, they were specifically designed to, the water would land on them. They would shunt the water in into an inside ditch, move that over to a culvert and put it under the road and send it down into the creek. And what that did was it, it caused the water that lands in the watershed to run off and out of the watershed faster than it would have during undisturbed conditions. So... And there's other things we've done to the watershed similarly that exacerbate that same problem. For example, um, the practice of removing some of the wood 
out of the stream system, uh, you know, back in the day, which was done because we put too much wood into the wood system from all the logging debris. But either way, the bottom line is is that it's it's changed the rate at at which water is being routed off the landscape. So that's a that's a process and and that has been highly disturbed. And when you put when you route water off the landscape quicker than it it was during undisturbed conditions, now you're putting more water into the creek system than the creek has ever seen. And so what does that do? It causes channel incision, it causes um, you know, uh, blowouts of the stream bed material. It causes pieces of wood and other rocks that normally might be stable to become mobilized. And so, um, and all those things have impact on fish habitat. So, like, that's a, that, that kind of, I just kind of linked, like, road construction to the destruction of in-stream fish habitat. So you can see these are very complex processes that, that are occurring, and, not, and, they, and they usually don't occur by themselves. So there's like a hydrologic processes, but what would be another processes would be um, a geologic processes. The geologic processes would be um, how is sediment being put into the stream and routed through the stream and resulting in its fate somewhere, you know? And um, so in normal undisturbed conditions, how does sediment get into the creek? It gets into the creek through landslides and other gullying that occurs during kind of, you know, storm events that happen kind of randomly through time. Um, but then when you go onto a landscape and chop down all the trees and drive bulldozers up and down the creeks and cut roads everywhere, you can break loose all those landslides. And that's exactly what we did probably between the 40s and the 70s is we just were too hard on the landscape. And all these landslides that were kind of loose spots on the ground that would probably have um, delivered into the watershed over a time frame of like 1,000 or 2,000 years, all went into the watershed in a matter of like 100 years. And so we overloaded the streams with sediment. Um, and now what we're seeing on the landscape, if you look at just the hydrologic processes and those geologic processes, what we see on the landscape is the relic landforms left over from the disruption of those two fundamental watershed processes. And it is extremely challenging to undo that level of disturbance. Um, but perhaps step one is to normalize the processes and then try to see if we can fix the, fix the stuff, you know? So, so what that all comes back to is what the new big word in the restoration community nowadays is called process-based restoration. Um, and anybody that's interested in that, um, if you just type that into like a Google search, you'll find there's a new group being formed through several people in the U.S. Forest Service and a lot of consultants and other people. And we're really starting to try to tease this out um, to figure out if there's more new and innovative approaches that we can bring to bear to bring these fisheries, you know, back to a more productive um, state. 
than what we're doing right now. Um, and you can, in the restoration world, you cannot be complacent. You always have to be taking it to the next level and questioning what you're doing. And that's what's happening right now. And it's super exciting. Yeah, it is. It's really interesting. And, and, you know, you were talking a bit about, you know, interdisciplinary science. And I think that's one of the other things that is exciting about um, watershed restoration right now is that I'm seeing more crossover between the different um, fields, professional fields. So, you, you know, as you're talking about disruptions to the hydrologic cycle and the forms of like surface runoff um, and and changes to you know land form features at the same time there's discussions going on in the forestry world and with the hydrologists about the management of forests historically and the condition of our forest today and how the kind of age classes and types of trees we have impact the amount of stream flow you know that exists or you know what's that relationship they're looking more and more at like the relationship of the kind of abiotic and biotic properties of these watersheds so that we can have a, a better understand as land managers what the corrective measures need to be to get to a point where that ecological process is is, is um, functioning in a way that it provides lots of habitat to lots of different fish and wildlife and also um, is diverse enough that it can help sustain those um, species in the face of climate change. So yep. my next question yep. for you. <laughs> Is kind of taking all of this into consideration, like the, the, your observations over time about the current conditions of the watershed and the, the historical actions that led us to these conditions. I mean, I think it's fair to say that timber operations today are very, very different than they were um, 100 years ago or even, you know, 70 years ago, right? Um, yeah. And and there's a lot of different policies that are in place and there's a lot just a new knowledge base i think um that's shared amongst the foresters and other timber industry professionals uh, but beyond that i'm curious you know like what you've hinted to this a little bit in your response but what actions do you think land managers and restoration practitioners need to take to restore healthy watersheds and to make them more resilient to the impacts of climate change? Yeah. Um, well, you know, I think, you know, first off the bat, in, in the part of the world that we live in, the, re, the reality is that, that most of the best um, salmon habitat ends up being on ground managed by industrial timber lands. I mean, that just simply is the way it is. And that's in part because, as, you, as we were mentioned earlier, as you start to build out subdivisions, you just drive the fish right out of the basin extremely quickly um, or limit them to just the most dwindling of populations. So, you know, a lot of it comes down to how are we going to manage our working landscapes, you know, in the, in the Pacific Northwest. Um, and... I think we all know 
given the legacy of what we can see on the landscape, um, that, you know, the way we did it in the past is perhaps not the best way to do that. So how can we manage our landscapes in the future? Uh, I think most importantly is, as awkward as this may sound, is keeping these big tracts of land in big single ownerships where where people can make decisions and actions can occur. As soon as you get into like a restoring a watershed in a rural subdivision, all of a sudden you got 30 or 40 people who all have different opinions that have to come into play to get anything done. And it only takes one person to throw a monkey wrench into all that and nothing is going to happen. Whereas on the larger managed landscapes, some more often than not, individuals or small collectives of people can make decisions to take actions, and you can really make meaningful progress. So I think that's that's kind of one one thing. Um, I think to go hand in hand with that, we need to reevaluate how we're managing our landscapes, um, and I think we need to have a focus on um, managing them um, for ecosystems, not for like individual species or trees, you know, like this is a working landscape. Sure, you've got to make some money, you know, to pay your bills, but there's a way to manage your timber harvest plans that uh, um, are consistent with environmental protection and even consistent with environmental restoration. And um, timber harvest operations for the last, you know, 20, 30 years have been very restrictive about not putting any wood in the creek because, you know, 50 years ago or 70 years ago, they were just pushing it into the creek with bulldozers and they they just went too crazy. So um, I think, you know, there's managing your landscapes in different ways, managing them for ecosystems, keeping large tracts of land in in um, in place in place where people can you know make decisions and actions can like actually happen um, you know if you're working in a place where it takes five years for somebody to make a decision to move something that's not fast enough we have almost wiped this species of fish out of California in less than a hundred years so five or ten years that's not much time and especially given the trajectory of the fish population so you know we have to protect the areas that are the most valuable and restore the areas that are relatively easy to restore. And then we can move on to the train wrecks um, and see if we can uh, make some availability. And then I would add one more thing is we really don't understand very well the life cycles of, of salmon in, in the way they use these different watersheds, it's just, it's not as simple as we all learned when we were kids, where the, where the fish go up and they dig a little nest and they lay their eggs and then they come out and then those fish just go down to the ocean and then they come back or they don't. It's not that simple. These fish, especially when they're juveniles, are moving all, they're moving out of their natal streams where they're born and going downstream into other streams and staying in there for a little while and then going into the estuary. They're moving all through the system as they try to avoid predation, as they try to put on weight before they get to the ocean and all these things. And we totally do not understand that. 
And um, so we may not be protecting areas that we should be because we don't because we aren't observing any fish there. But that's because we trashed the place. But actually, that might be a missing link to recovering a watershed adjacent or upstream. So um, I think that those are kind of some of the paradigms shifts that we may need to to get to where we need to be. I am curious, though, I mean, as a restoration practitioner, is there any particular type of restoration that has you really excited right now? Yes. Um, but it's, it's, it's kind of a – what gets me excited right now, above and beyond just restoring processes and process-based restoration, is – is something that I'm sure you've covered on your show over and over and over again. So it's an old topic with new thoughts to bring to bear is back to large woody debris wood loading. And, um, and, and the reason I say this, and I know you've, you've talked about this extensively because very few people have put as much wood in the creek as, as your organization has um, in Northern California. But what I'm interested in now is, is, Rather than using the wood like we're kind of using right now to create individual habitat features, I'm interested in using wood to um, help restore uh, stream channels at like the reach scale, like, you know, over hundreds or thousands of feet. And I think that my personal opinion is that it's going to require us as a restoration community to actually put significantly more wood into the creek than we currently are or are currently being required by the various grant programs that we, um, we tend to take advantage of. Um, yeah. And I'm talking about yeah, like I agree. density <laughs> where, where the one, like, like what I like to say is one, if you build a wood jam, if you're really trying to restore the geomorphology of a stream channel reach, the, the wood jams you put in, they have to feel each other hydrologically. It means that the eddies and mm-hmm. swirls and gravel sorting that comes associated with one jam, just as it's starting to diminish its impact, all that intersects the next jam downstream. And that means that these we're talking about spacing you know, large wood jams at like, you know, two to five times the width of the channel. And right now, we're putting them in at, you know, 200, 300 feet, you know, intervals. And those are fine for creating individual habitat and individual locations, but it ends up just like, um, uh, just like ecology sort of does. They, when they interact with each other, they get like orders of magnitude better results than everything acting individually. And so that's what really is getting me fired up right now. Um, you know, I'm working on a project with your organization, as you're aware of, and you saw where we're going to do that. And, um, and it's really going to be a, um, a demonstration project of how we can do things a little bit differently. Not even a huge big change. We're just going to have a little more we're just going to add a little more density to the to the wood loading. So that's getting me really fired up, and I think that that is going to have a lot of um, potential to have some really positive impacts 
especially in the kind of um, upper parts of the watersheds, you know, where the fish are. It might not be so relevant mm -hmm. in the lower estuary parts or where the channels are really, really big, but in these smaller channel reaches, I think we could really have some substantial impacts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've definitely observed that and agree with you. Um, particularly, there's some work, we've done a lot of work in the South Fork of the 10 Mile, and we've gone back and retreated. And after, you know, like the same um, reaches that we have treated previously, and that interaction between the older structures and the newer structures is so fascinating, and it creates it, it creates that geomorphic change and that complexity that we're, I think we're always striving for, um, but that we that we weren't uh, accomplishing in the more limited treatments that we had provided earlier. So is that compounding effect? And then we also and we did interview the researchers about this, but. To you, um, in partnership with Cal Fish and Wildlife and NOAA Fisheries and a whole myriad of other partners, um, completed a study to kind of really look at what wood is doing in stream and and does it result in more fish? And and like most studies, we ended up with more questions than answers. But I think one of the potential takeaways that we got from that study is that even though we had treated a substantial area, like eight miles with hundreds and like, we still didn't put enough wood in. Like we didn't treat it heavily enough to maybe get the geomorphic change that we wanted in the time frame that we were expecting. And time has a big, you know, is a big component in all of that too. I will leave you with one final thought on wood, is that don't okay, think great. of wood as habitat in the creek. Just think about the role that wood plays in regulating the rate at which sediment and water flow through any given stream reach. And if you have no wood, right. your sediment in your water is just blowing right through your stream reach. If you have lots of wood, it's slowing the water down and it's, it's, it's making the complexity of, of forces that result in the myriad habitat that the fish can then pick and choose from. So don't think of wood as just right. individual habitat. Think of it as a regulator of water and, and, and sediment. Which is gonna be really, really important as we continue to encounter different precipitation patterns on the landscape and different um, temperature patterns as well. Yes. Thanks, yeah. Tom. I really appreciate you sitting with us. Um, you're always a delight to listen to. So, yeah, thanks. Any any time, of course. And uh, thanks, <laughs> thanks to all the listeners who actually had the patience to sit through that. So if people want to learn more about Pacific Watershed Associates, where can they find information about PWA? Uh, well, probably the best place is our webpage, um, www.pacificwatershed.com. You'll find all kinds of oh, cool easy. stuff, and you can look at the projects we've done, and you can contact our project managers, and, um, you know, and, uh, you know, if you are a landowner yourself or you're in a rural subdivision, you know, um, the reality is you can't just rely on people like me and Anna to find these projects and get out there. People have to really 
grab the bull by the horns in their own watershed. So organize your own watershed group, man. Know your watershed. Everybody should know what watershed they live in, and they should, you know, have ideas about how it's been disturbed and what they can do in the future to, you know, protect it. And so it's a, it's a community effort. Definitely. It'll definitely take a community effort to, to recover salmon. And that concludes my interview with Tom Leroy, engineering geologist with Pacific Watershed Associates. Tonight's show was focused on an overview of the geology of the North Coast, where we learned about the Mendocino Triple Junction, which is a place in the Pacific Ocean near Cape Mendocino, where the North American Plate, the Gorda Plate, and the Pacific Plate meet. About two or three million years ago, the Triple Junction was a lot closer to Fort Bragg, but it has been steadily moving north. As subduction zones migrate north, the compression of the Earth's crust south of the Triple Junction has shifted. And instead of an east-to-west orientation, which caused the formation of the coast range, the compression is now from north to south. And this drives the continental plate against the north-trending San Andreas, and this compression causes ridges and valleys to form in an east-to-west trending pattern. And, as Tom explained, all of these processes have helped create watershed basins with really high-quality habitat for Pacific Coast salmon. Thanks for tuning in to the Ecology Hour. I'm Anna Halligan, and good night. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.